It's the wheelchair commandments. Yeah. Can't tell me nothing about these wheels. Nothing. This chair. Uh-uh. Where my four wheelers at, huh? Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, welcome to Episode 7, Disability Rights Today. Disability Rights Today provides our listeners with new insights on recent court cases that shape the Americans with Disabilities Act and impact the civil rights of people with disabilities. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm director of the Southeast ADA Center. As a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form anytime at disabilityrightstoday.org. On today's episode, we'll be discussing how far we have come and how far we must go to ensure compliance with the Americans with Disabilities Act. It's been 32 years since the passage of this very important civil rights legislation, and yet we still find the ADA is often treated as an afterthought rather than a federal law by employers and businesses. To provide us with an overview of the years since the passage of the ADA and compliance through those years, we welcome Eve Hill, Jason Turkish, and of course, Dr. Peter Blank. Eve is a partner at the law firm of Brown, Goldstein, and Levy. She's a nationally known disability rights advocate and expert on disability rights law. Jason Turkish is the president and managing partner of Nyman Turkish PC, a nationwide litigation and disability law firm with offices in California, Florida, and Michigan. Jason is a powerful advocate and has captivated the attention of clients, fellow attorneys, advocates, and the news media. As always, our host for this episode is Dr. Peter Blank, chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute and university professor at Syracuse University. Welcome, and it's a privilege to have you. So Peter, I'm turning it over to you. Thank you, Barry, and Eve and Jason. It really is a pleasure to be speaking with you both today. Thank you, it's nice to be here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be joining you and your listeners. Well, Eve knows my wife, Wendy, and so do many on this uh, call. Every year, New Year's, we try to predict our predictions for the coming year. We stopped writing them, I think, three years ago or two years ago, whenever the world was turned upside down or began to be turned upside down. Gosh knows uh, none of us would predicted the type of war the world is in today, the type of pandemic, the types of challenges people are facing in the disability community in terms of poverty and housing and employment. And this is 30 plus years after the ADA. So Jason and Eve, I thought I'd focus on today with you, not as much where we've been, because many of us know and our listeners are fairly savvy about the history of the ADA. And of course, we'll talk about some of your important efforts. But you both believe we're kind of at a, a watershed moment, it almost seems like, in our community more generally, of which people with disabilities make up a lion's share in America and around the world. You believe, I guess my question is, that um, the decisions we make now will have long-term future implications for many generations to come about the disability community? I guess I'll start with Eve. Eve and I go way back. Sorry for such a big-winded question, but I guess in essence I'm asking Eve, are we operating in a new environment that we've ever operated in before? 
that's related to the equality of people with disabilities? Boy, am I not prepared to answer that question. Um, I, I don't know. So I think in, in a lot of ways, we are at a catalyst point. And really at this point, it could go either way. One way is, so we're getting, we're getting a lot of pushback on disability civil rights and LGBTQ rights, a lot, like vicious back to the bad old days. In fact, worse than the bad old days. People will now say, I don't want you here because of your disability. Um, where they used to say, oh, it's not your disability. I just, you know, want, don't want you to be protected. And the same thing about LGBTQ. People are much more blatantly prejudiced. Some people. On the other hand, younger people in particular are like, what's the big deal? And insist on inclusion, do inclusion naturally, and don't understand why anybody would be prejudiced against people with disabilities or LGBTQ people or why anybody would go, go somewhere where they were excluded or would not include them in everything they do. So if the, if the young people, as they should, get to take over the world, we will be in excellent shape. <laughs> if these old attitudes, which are clinging to the old attitudes in the face of this transist transformation, stay for longer, we will continue to be in this fairly bad place for a longer period of time. Sorry to be so <laughs> unhopeful in the short term. No, that was a, that's a hard question and a very thoughtful response I should have added. And Jason, I would put this to you. At the same time, our country has gone through kind of a racial reckoning, racial justice, police shootings, demonstrations, first African-American president, first African-American vice president. And we're kind of beginning, I hope, Jason, to view disability as just one element of an intersectional or multiple identity of many people. You find that um, true in your sense of where we're going, Jason? And certainly feel free to, to respond to the first part of the question as well. Well, my response to the first part of the question is I'm glad Eve went first because it's a big, complicated question and um, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. And it's something that as practitioners, we encounter, you know, every single day. And it really does depend. You know, so, some days it certainly feels to me like we are progressing to maybe version 2.0 or even version 3.0 of disability rights as a civil right, where we're litigating more technical matters, more complex access issues, um, particularly around access to electronic materials, and that this is, you know, a, an incremental uh, step, steps towards progress are being made. Then I walk into the office today and I have a prospective client matter where a physician put in writing to some to his deaf patient that he has no obligation to provide a sign language interpreter. Oh. And I'm thinking, wow, we really aren't that far along. So it uh, it really it really depends on the day. But I agree with the premise of your second question, which is as which is that disability rights should be viewed as this sort of intersectional topic, that this is the civil rights issue that transcends all other 
demographic lines of race and gender and ethnicity and, and sexual orientation, because those of us who practice in this area realize that we represent clients from every walk of life, that we're all sort of whatever expression you want to look at it, one car accident, God forbid, away, one chronic illness diagnosis away from some definition of disability. And so therefore, this should be this should be the civil rights topic that's easier for everybody to wrap their heads around. But it very much depends on the audience or in the case of the work even I do, I think very much depends on the judge or jury you find yourself in front of that day. Jason, I want to stay with you because I think it's important we drill down a little bit on this physician's attitude that uh, I think if I heard you correctly, does not have to provide a sign language interpreter, that's their position. Um, where does that come from in this day and age? And I, I, I don't mean to be naive. I know the pushback as Eve has said, but have we not accomplished anything in this community in the last 30 years with, with uh, doctors and others? Well, where is that coming from in your mind? Well, I don't want to go too far into speculating into their motivation because I can very much assure you we will be litigating that <laughs> issue but not, but not promptly Jason. in federal court in Detroit. But, um, you know, as not far as... particular doctor, Jason, but, you yeah. know, I mean, we, this is, we hear this a lot, this scenario. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting when it's actually said, right? So it's, it's one thing to sort of guess that you're being discriminated against. It's, it's one thing to sort of guess that the reason your doctor seems very uninterested in caring for you hypothetically is because you require them to have a sign language interpreter. It's a bit further along on a continuum of problematic when you actually put in writing no, I have no obligation to provide you the sign language interpreter. I won't be providing the sign language interpreter and basically, oh, well. So that, I mean, that exists on the end of a continuum where, um, you know, if we were talking about other minority groups, we would, you know, we would have public outrage. We would have a, a CNN story. Unfortunately, I don't think that level of outrage is automatic when it's a disability issue. Um, you know, this, we will not serve you, essentially. Um, I think we've reached a point of, as a society, that in other civil rights topics, whether it's race, ethnicity, gender, I will not serve you. Get out of here. You're not welcome here. We've sort of gotten past that in the few very bad actors who who take those positions um, are appropriately subjected to a lot of, of public scorn. Somehow in disability cases, it almost seems like it's still okay to take these negative attitudes. And I'd be curious on Eve's um, impression, but the, this sort of vitriol and this willingness to say, we don't want people with disabilities here. And I think she led with it in her first answer. It's something that's unique, in my view, to the disability community that other groups have um, have not continued to face as persistently. I do want to hear Eve's view on this. I would cite to the first case before the United States Supreme Court, even you can tell me the date of Bragdon versus Abbott, <laughs> where uh, Early. Some, would say, <laughs> some would say it's a test case and they, uh, Dr. Bragdon wrote that denial of providing to fill her cavity because he said, take me to the United States Supreme Court. I wonder, Eve, 
what your view of Jason's comments are. And I wonder if, is there a potential spillover from this new iteration of um, almost free speech religion cases? You know, the, the cake masters and the, uh, I won't serve a particular type of person because it goes against my interests. Are we in a different uh, climate now? Yeah, we're there. Um, and it's not, but it's, I don't think it's that much worse for people with disabilities than it is for racial minorities or certainly LGBTQ folks uh, that people, some businesses, mostly businesses are feeling much more free to say, I don't want you here. And I think I have a good enough reason and it may be my religion and it may be my convenience. And in the disability case, they get to point to it. Maybe it's my expense. Uh, and, and sadly, I think courts are letting them get away with it. And so that's a real problem right now. Whatever your partisan politics are, the Democrats do have the presidency and both houses of Congress. Eve, why not strengthen the law, the ADA? Isn't now the time to fix these problems once and for all? Well, if you could pass something with 50 votes, it would be, but we can't pass anything with 50 votes. So. Right now, uh, you would need 60 votes to pass anything to update the ADA. And opening up the ADA leads to the possibility of making things worse uh, when the other party gets, gets to say. Now, disability used to be bipartisan, it really did. Bob Dole was one of our chief advocates uh, and it is sadly not very bipartisan anymore. You know, that's a very interesting and important point uh, for our listeners, uh, many know, of course, it was a bipartisan bill, a Republican president and a, a Democratic Congress, very, very joint uh, unanimous support. And that has, uh, that has changed. Jason, um, is this reflected? I know we talked about the doctor case, potentially. Is this your sense of how this is reflected generally and what you're seeing from a litigation point of view? I think defendants are willing to take harsher stances against plaintiffs than maybe a few years ago, even if it's just the sort of the, the narrative or the theme of their defenses. I hear more, they're just trying to get an unfair advantage. That seems to be a, a popular one, or, you know, we're going to have to do this for everyone. Everyone loves the slippery slope argument, although the slope you know, it's not that steep. It's not that slippery. And people still have to provide documentation to get in, in appropriate circumstances to get the, the types of accommodations that we're often finding ourselves litigating over. So um, I had a, a case in federal court where a, a plaintiff had been shot at 34 times in active duty combat in Afghanistan and was arguing for a transfer from the southern border of the Homeland Security Department Border Patrol to northern because the Texas border looked a heck of a lot like that scenery in Afghanistan. It was triggering his PTSD. And without any evidence at all, the government defended that case on the narrative that he was a racist and wanted to be on the northern border with people who looked more like him. His physicians pointed out that what he had been trained to do in Afghanistan was walk three miles per hour at a very slow speed, listening for foreign speakers, uh, because that was the first sign of an ambush. 
And evidently, because they identified that as a trigger of his PTSD, he wanted to be with only English-speaking white people on the northern border. Because evidently, people control, they choose to have PTSD, they choose what triggers them, and they have control over them. That was the U.S. attorney's view of disability in, in this modern era. So the harshness of which I am seeing defendants come at plaintiffs who have meritorious cases uh, the rhetoric is pretty is getting pretty intense, pretty ugly out there. Jason, let's go around to the other side of the table, and Eve can comment on this as well. You're a small business in Florida or California, and uh, a plaintiff is sending out a thousand demand letters. And uh, I know some is frivolous, and some of it has been pushed back by the courts. And but the public is aware of these these challenges. There have been attempts to modify the law in terms of demand letters and so forth. What's the perspective from the other side of the table, Jason? A small business or a, uh, a, a small doctor's office who basically gets uh, Medicaid reimbursement and that's it and would have to pay for the sign language interpreter out of his or her pocket. I, I understand the, the concern on a general basis but it's just not borne out in reality. The incidence rates of these disabilities and the frequency of needing to provide the accommodation is minimal. And the law is pretty well settled on what is a reasonable economic impact. There are protections for defendants in cases where the cost of providing an accommodation, particularly when it's physical modifications to existing structures, for example, are extraordinarily high relative to say a construction project. But Congress has considered and on a bipartisan basis rejected that you shouldn't ever face an economic cost of serving individuals with disabilities. And we've decided that as a matter of public policy. It's been the law for over three decades. And you know, I'm not incredibly sympathetic to the concern that if somebody sees, you know, a couple hundred patients in a week and they have to pay for an interpreter for one patient every six weeks, it, it, it doesn't seem like a big cost to making medical care, which is so fundamental and such a basic human right accessible to everybody. So I'm, I'm not entirely moved by it. Obviously, I don't focus my practice on the type of cases that you're describing where somebody's sending a thousand demand letters. I certainly understand that the media likes to talk about these things, that there's a sensationalism to them to say that these are frivolous lawsuits or th this is about attorneys making a, a quick, easy buck. I assure you the cases I do are, don't make, they're not quick or easy in any way in the cases that we seek attorney's fees. They, they are about bringing about systemic long-term change uh, for people who have been marginalized for a very long time. And I've heard these stories too. And just, you know, I, I can see both sides sort of. It's been 32 years for heaven's sake. Why do you still have a step at your entrance? And why for heaven's sake, isn't your website accessible? Because seriously, the whole internet thing has happened since the ADA. You might want to want to have thought about that. But on the other hand, I don't really believe in, in filing lawsuits without a demand letter and letting people, giving people an option to fix things without engaging in litigation. And I don't do stick up lawsuits and I don't think anybody should. But the claim that these are all frivolous 
I'm a little skeptical of because if they were actually frivolous lawsuits, there would be bar complaints against these lawyers and there aren't. That's a pretty cheap, pretty easy process. Complaint filer doesn't have to do any of the work. So I, I, I'm a little skeptical that these are frivolous lawsuits when no one's actually taking the very easy process to challenge them. If somebody's suing over curb cuts at crosswalks, well, there's a lot of crosswalks in America. And if you can't get over them and you can't get to your doctor's office or your pharmacy or your place of, of business and you, you're trapped in your house, just suing to remove one missing curb cut isn't going to really help you if when you get to the next town over, there's similarly an issue there. And again, this isn't the work I do, but I'm very uncomfortable with impugning it because it's important. It's a different side of disability rights work, and it's not less important. And some of these cases do exist in significant quantities, and it doesn't mean that they are by definition frivolous. In fact, what sometimes it means is that defendants are very brazen to 32 years after the ADA continue to renovate, continue to build, continue to maintain existing infrastructure that is, is patently inaccessible. And is, is that because there's really no teeth in the compliance or enforcement structure? Is that a problem of DOJ and the private bar? Eve or Jason? Well, having to litigate every, every small barrier leads you into things like this, getting accused of filing too many lawsuits, being a frivolous litigator. Litigation enforcement is the only tool we have. So that's what we do. We're living through a pandemic and books, including my own and articles have been written on the cases that have come out on disability during the pandemic. There's one area which I understand, which I was hoping you guys could clarify for our listeners. And that relates to accommodations, but how an accommodation for a particular person with a disability may be implemented by having others change their behavior, like wearing masks or getting vaccinated and so forth. Was that the original conception, do you believe, of this concept of accommodation, even Jason? Oh yeah. And, and, and is it correct under COVID? No, and yeah, it was. We, the ADA sometimes inconveniences people without disabilities. You have to let the dog in, even if it might make you sneeze. You have to have a, you can't park in the wheelchair accessible spot, even if it's the closest one. You can't park in the wheelchair accessible spot, even if it's the only one that's not filled. You can't sit in the, in the reserve seating for the wheelchair user because it's the reserve seating for the wheelchair user. It sometimes inconveniences people without disabilities and having to wear a mask because your uh, colleague with a disability might die doesn't seem like an irrational balance. Just to stay with you Eve, for a second then Jason, I want your opinion. So is there a distinction between inconvenience and forcing somebody else to have an affirmative behavior to take a shot or to wear a mask? Or is, am I missing, is it really the same thing in your mind? There's no right not to wear a mask, just as there's no right to not wear a seatbelt and there's no right to drive drunk. Jason? Couldn't agree with Eve more. I mean, even though a global pandemic perhaps was not thought of when the ADA was drafted and when the implementing regs were drafted, they nonetheless 
are informative in this in this time. You know, the modifications that rise to such a burden that would fundamentally alter a, a defendant's programs and services. They might have a valid defense, but small nuisances or inconveniences or, and, and again, I'm describing them pejoratively. I, I'm not sure these really are that much of a nuisance or an inconvenience. I'm, I'm sort of painting them in the, in the light most favorable to those that would make these spurious arguments. Uh, they don't seem like incredible inconveniences. Uh, separate from a legal requirement, it actually just seems like human decency that if you work three feet away from somebody who is severely immune compromised and they ask you to wear a mask during a global pandemic, uh, it just seems like the right thing to do. And it certainly doesn't seem like it rises to a level where there's a colorable defense to not having to do so. The obligation to mask is stronger in places where you're near the person for a long time, in employment, in school, less so in the place where the person with the disability is popping in to grab something at the grocery store and you're further apart and you're not there for very long. So maybe it's less a different balance then. And vaccination is also a different balance. So whether anyone could, could be required to be vaccinated because of a person with a disability, that simply hasn't been studied. It hasn't been studied whether uh, people with disabilities would benefit from their peers being vaccinated. And it's a different, uh, it's a different set of burdens, uh, much more inconvenient uh, or difficult than wearing a mask is. So I don't have an answer on vaccination. I wanna take a moment to thank our listeners. And of course, if they have questions about this topic or any other disability rights today topics, please submit your questions at disabilityrightstoday.org, disabilityrightstoday, all one word, dot org, or call the Southeast ADA Center at 1404-541-9001. Well, we're continuing with a fascinating conversation with Eve Hill and Jason Turkish. Eve, if Bragdon was briefed and decided today we have a very different composition on the United States Supreme Court. Is this the time not to bring cases, ADA disability cases to this United States Supreme Court? Probably depends on the case. I think Bragdon would be decided the same way. Uh, I'm not sure Casey Martin would be decided the same way. So it probably depends on the case and it depends on the issue. There are um, clearly perspectives of the Supreme Court that don't uh, that don't accept the existence of disparate impact discrimination or systemic discrimination and require sort of blatant one-to-one -one discrimination in order to find a violation. And I think that's the biggest risk of going to the Supreme Court. But just for our um, listeners to unpack that a little bit, then Jason, I wanna hear disparate impact can be both an individual claim as well as a class action claim. Mm -hmm. And that means the policies, practices, and standards that a person is challenging, basically? It's, think of it like the Kitagawa case, where Hawaii required any, any dog coming into the state to be quarantined for, I think, two weeks. And that really was a problem for people who use service animals. They would be without their service animal for their entire vacation. <laughs> and so you can say there are two ways that that could be a violation. One is it's a failure to make a reasonable modification for this particular blind person who comes in with a service dog. And that's not disparate impact. 
The other way to look at, at it is this, this rule has a disparate impact on people with disabilities who use guide dogs. And so you can either say you, Hawaii, have to make an exception to this quarantine rule for guide dogs, or you can say your rule is, so, is problematic entirely and can't exist because it hurts guide dogs. And you're saying this present Supreme Court may be antagonistic to this concept of disparate impact as a general matter. Yes. And that would not just be towards disability, but other protected yes. categories as well? Yes, it started in the race context and has been going on there for a long time. And is that tied to the affirmative action questions at all? Not really. I think it's more tied to whether you believe or not that discrimination exists beyond uh, flat out prejudice with animus. Um, and so some people believe that discrimination is gone. We don't do it anymore, except a few bad apples who basically say, this is, I'm discriminating against you because of this protected characteristic. Um, and so if you believe that society is now basically not discriminatory and does not have systemic racism built into it, then you don't believe in disparate impact because it doesn't affect, because it goes after people who were not being intentionally discriminatory. And Jason, what do you think are among the most important topics, disability topics before the courts today that are pending that may or may not go up to the United States Supreme Court? I think you'd have to consider access to electronic resources as the most pressing issue today because technology is such an opportunity. We're at such an inflection point of being able to create new kinds of accessibility. The pandemic has shown us that participation via Zoom can be a real opportunity for somebody who physical attendance at even something like a court proceeding was previously very challenging for. But it's only as useful as it is as we are able to ensure basic levels of accessibility. And that's why cases that deal with issues like, you know, everything from e-commerce to voting, that's an important one of being able to vote in an accessible electronic manner. Those matter really more, more than ever, or else the promise of technology to level the playing field um, will elude us. Uh, Jason, we did a whole show on this Winn-Dixie case with the president of NFB, the president of NAD, I forget, and maybe the plaintiff as well, I can't remember. Um, so that was kind of a, it's for, for many of us with legal minds, it's still a little bit uncertainty around that whole idea of web accessibility, at least in that 11th circuit. Where, where are we at in light of that case? Or are we, or, or are we back where we started? That case is not impactful. Well, I think the concern for me when I read that case, and I'd be concerned, I'd be interested in what Eve's thoughts are on this, is that if, if a case along similar facts went up to the Supreme Court, there certainly is, is some risk. You asked earlier about, do we need to be strategic in what we potentially bring before the court? And I think in areas that are sort of ripe for issues of first impression or for overhaul rulings on entire spheres of, of industry like e-commerce um, and web accessibility, 
we need to be particularly sensitive to which cases we're, we're, we're working on, which cases we're bringing up, making sure that we don't have situations where bad facts are creating bad law. Um, I think we do need to be careful as a, as a legal community and within the disability community of how we approach those issues. Many of us years ago were, were urging the DOJ, some of the people on this phone who were in positions of power to push forward a, a rule, some rulemaking in that regard. It hasn't come. Eve, comment on whether that's possible in this current environment and anything further on Winn-Dixie and its implications? It is possible that they can get a rule out on web accessibility during this administration. So that's very positive. And we're pushing them to do that, of course. Winn-Dixie is currently just a toss-up in, in the 11th Circuit. Nothing, nothing remains of that case at the moment. We'll see if Winn-Dixie tries to take it to the Supreme Court. Because nothing exists in that case at the moment, they really, I don't think they can challenge the substance. There's no substantive decision there at all. There's only a decision about whether the case was moot and therefore couldn't be decided on, on appeal. So I don't know whether the Supreme Court's gonna be interested in deciding a mootness question. Uh, putting Winn-Dixie aside, worst case for us on web accessibility was in the Ninth Circuit where they said the website had to have a nexus to a brick and mortar location. The Eleventh Circuit panel, the three judge panel managed to come up with a worse standard than that. Uh, although I can't say I really understood that other than that it was worse <laughs> than the nexus standard. The rest of the country has seemed to say, yeah, I think websites are kind of covered, at least in, uh, insurance uh, policies that were, nobody had no connection to a physical office were covered. And so having crossed that line, we can guess that where they would go with websites. So we, we'll see. I'm sure there'll be another case in the 11th Circuit or the 5th Circuit, and that'll be very exciting. <laughs> For full disclosure, I was co-counsel, minor role, with some amazing lawyers, Larry Paradis, who's passed away at Disability Rights Advocates. Eve may have been involved and others in a case called National Federation of the Blind versus Target, where My the next requirement <laughs> was established, <laughs> among other places. Um, you're both lawyers. Closing comments. Eve, are you, I hope, optimistic about the future in some ways? It's a hard time to be optimistic, I know, but we have some hope in this area, I believe, still. What's your views, Eve? And then, Jason, I'll ask you for final remarks. I must be optimistic. I keep filing cases. Um, and I am very optimistic that the next generation uh, totally gets this and is not going to do this stuff anymore. But right now, I'm concerned about where we are. And, and sadly, judges lag uh, behind generational shifts. And so that continues to be a question. I think more and more, our cases are not decided on the substance. They're decided at very early stages, I think, because courts want to reduce their case their caseloads. And so there was, they're decided on things like standing and sovereign immunity and those kinds of things that really don't have an impact on the substance. So we're not getting a lot of law made these days, which is too bad because there's a lot of work going into litigation where, you know, we, should, we could use some clarity in the law. <laughs> Jason, same question to you. I would agree. I'm cautiously optimistic. My, for me, it hinges on whether the disability community is successful in increasing their levels of representation in the legal profession, on the bench, 
I think it's been very successfully understood by other groups that if we want to really turn the page, then people need to, you know, have shared experiences and that diversity creates pathways to, to, to progress. Making disability part of the diversity equation is so often it, it just isn't. So having lawyers with disabilities is really, really important. That would make me more optimistic. It's why I sort of have a soft spot for working on cases that deal with the sort of threshold issues that keep people out of the legal profession, whether it's standardized testing or difficulties with bar admission, uh, because I think it's so important uh, that we increase our numbers. Um, Because guess who's going to handle cases like this? I mean, obviously, there are fabulous disability rights attorneys who don't have disabilities. But if we can pair them with folks who have lived it and experienced it and really want to commit to this topic, we're going to be in a much better place because of it. Last question, quick response for both of you. Judge Brown Jackson, Supreme Court, good for disability? Eve? I haven't done my own research, but the folks who have done the research say that she understands uh, disability and is, treats it reasonably. And so, yes, good for disability. Jason? I haven't heard any negativity and the disability rights community is willing to speak up. She'll be a great addition to the court. Well, listeners, for me, these interviews are most, most satisfying when two things. It's a conversation in which I am listening intently and I learn a lot. And both of these things happen today with amazing lawyers and citizens, great American citizens who are fighting for civil rights generally. Eve and Jason, I'm really grateful. and We are all grateful for your time today and insights. I wanna thank our listeners for joining us. Here's to us having a additional conversation in the future where we talk about some of these issues and some of the accomplishments to come. Barry, I turn it back to you now. All right, thank you, Peter. And, and thank you to Eve Hill and Jason Turkish for being our guests today. What a great conversation. Thank you again for giving us some of your time. Listeners, as a reminder, uh, you can access Disability Rights Today episodes at our website. That's disabilityrightstoday.org. All episodes are archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts, and resources. You can download Disability Rights Today on your handheld device. Go to your podcast app store and search for ADA Live. You can also listen to Disability Rights Today on our SoundCloud channel. Again, if you have questions about the ADA, you can submit them anytime online at disabilityrightstoday.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And as always, those calls are free and they're confidential. Disability Rights Today is a program of the Southeast ADA Center in collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Project. Disability Rights Today is produced by Celestia Razda with Mary Mortar, Marcia Schwanke, our student intern this semester, Chase Coleman, Beth Harrison, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Thanks for listening, and remember, your rights matter. Oh,